Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 3, verse 16 to 21. This is the word of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And, then, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Emily, um, and thank you, Elias, for the announcements. Uh, just one thing about the membership class, if you're interested, uh, wanting to join the membership class, it doesn't mean that you're committing yourself to membership, it just means that you want to get to know more about what's, who CC is and what membership is all about. So if you do want to check that out and get to know more about who we are and all that, uh, again, please let Emily know, who just did the scripture reading up front, and she'll sign you up. And if we have enough people signed up for it, we're going to do one earlier before September. Okay, so, but if not, then we'll just wait till September. All right, so today our sermon text, we're continuing in our series throughout the book of John. You've been with us for the past few weeks, you know, or past year, really, you know that we are right now uh, going through the book of John. And as you know, John is what we call a gospel. A gospel is a name for the books in the Bible that records the life and the ministry of Jesus, what Jesus did on earth, what he did who he talked to, uh, places he went to, all, all his interactions. There's four Gospels in the Bible. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But our passage today is unique because it kind of takes a break from what we call is the narrative proper. The narrative proper is the actual plot line, like the actual storyline of what Jesus did. Our passage today is kind of a break from that. Um, and you see the author, John, kind of, quote-unquote, intruding into the storyline, like a narrator or a commentator. You know when you, you watch a movie and the story would go on, and all of a sudden you'd hear a narrator voice just kind of intrude into the story, and, kind of, and the plot is kind of put on pause for the narrator to do his thing. That, that's what our passage is today. And usually the purpose of this narrator is to make sure that the audience, well, in this case the readers, know how to properly understand the meaning behind what just happened in the story. Our passage today is not a part of the narrative proper, but it's John commentating, it's John narrating on the recent events of what just happened in the book. And because this is a commentary on the recent events, we have to know what John is commentating on. We have to remind ourselves about the events that happened. Okay, so let's take a second to refresh uh, uh, our memories about what happened in, in the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 uh, that John is commentating on. So, if you remember that Jesus just got done preaching the gospel in the temple. If you remember in chapter 2, Jesus went to the temple and what did he see? He saw merchants selling what? Selling sacrificial animals. Why? Because these merchants were saying if you buy these sacrificial animals and you sacrifice them, you will be forgiven from your sins, and you will be saved. That's, that was kind of their system back then, right? And Jesus got really, really upset. He went to the temple, and he drove away all the merchants. He drove away all the sacrificial animals. 
Why? Well, one, we know that he's upset that people would use God's place of worship as a place of business to earn money. But also, he did that to preach the gospel. He did that to say, um, he, he scared the merchants away, and he's saying, you don't need to pay these people for your salvation. He drove the animals away, and he said, you don't need to sacrifice these animals for your salvation. I'm going to pay for your sin. I'm going to be sacrificed for your sin. This is not how you get to God. Confirming the words of John the Baptist all throughout chapter 1 that says Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's preaching the gospel here, the good news, that he'll be the one who will die on the cross, pay for our sins, become our sacrificial offering. And the religious authorities at the time didn't like it at all. If you remember, they confronted Jesus in the temple and they didn't like it because at the core, what Jesus was saying is completely opposite to what they were saying. They were saying, yes, we're imperfect. Yes, we do things wrong now and then. But we're not that helpless. We're not that powerless. If we can just do enough good things, surely we can save ourselves. Surely by going to church or by reading the Bible or by doing whatever religious activities, we can earn our salvation. And Jesus, through his actions, is saying, no. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how much money you pay. It doesn't matter what you sacrifice. You cannot get to God on your own. It must be given to you. You are indeed, in fact, helpless and powerless. And this confrontation did not stop Jesus from preaching the gospel. So the religious authorities, if you remember in the beginning of chapter 3, sent another person, Nicodemus. Nicodemus represented the Pharisees. He was called a religious leader. If you read uh, the beginning of chapter 3, he's reputable. People loved him. He was respected. And he tried to intimidate Jesus to stop preaching the gospel again like the religious authorities did. That didn't work either. Jesus ended up preaching the gospel to him instead. Now, after all this happened, John, our author, felt the need to pause the narrative proper and give a commentary on what just happened. Why? Because of something in these two events that can be not so immediately obvious to the readers. And that thing is a particular fear that everybody has. Whether you're religious or you're not religious, whether you consider yourself church folk or non-church folk, there's something, there's a fear that makes the gospel difficult to embrace by any human being. And for those still exploring the gospel, I hope that this, uh, this passage can help you understand the gospel more, what it is. And for those who are Christians, I pray that this passage will help you become better ministers of it, not only to others, but also to yourself. And whether or not you are here and you consider yourself religious, you consider yourself not religious, I hope at the very least that what John is saying here will help us be more empathetic to each other as we see that the same fear exists in all men. There's three things I want to point out. One is the love of God for a dark world. Two, the fear that entangles a dark world. And three, the Christian's life in a dark world. The love of God for a dark world, the fear that entangles a dark world, the Christian's life in the dark world. All right, I'll pray us in, and then we'll begin our sermon. Father, as we explore the heartbeat of this passage and what you are trying to tell us through 
the Apostle John, I beg that you uh, be merciful to us and know that this endeavor is not just one that merely impacts the mind, but many things um, in the heart can make us embrace it or reject it or be confused by it. So I pray that you be gracious not only to our minds, but also to our hearts, that you would reveal to us this love and the fear that we have in which this light brings with it. Thank you for who you are. Uh, be with us now. Jesus, let me pray. Amen. Point one, the love of God for a dark world. Okay. Again, this passage is a commentary that John is giving to help us make sense of the interactions Jesus just had with the religious leaders of the time. In the temple, Nicodemus, the religious leaders who rejected the gospel. But we can't judge these religious leaders because in our passages today, it's clear that John uses these religious leaders as a representation of the world as a whole, as a representation of all of us who all have the tendencies to reject the gospel, or as he puts it here, to hide from the light. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, who is Christ, the gospel, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Yes, it's a commentary on the religious leaders of the time, but it's also a commentary on our hearts, on the world. So why does the world, why do we, like the religious leaders of that time, often hide from the light and embrace the darkness. What about the darkness is more appealing than the light? Well, let's first study what John means by the term world, okay? Let's look at verses 16 to 19. I'll just read it out with us again. Notice the term world, or in Greek, cosmos, is used a few times in, in, this, in these three verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. First, the term world, cosmos, used by John a few times in this passage. And it's used throughout the book of John in a few different ways, mainly two ways. The term world sometimes is used to describe the actual earth, the actual trees and the ground and the sky, like, like the earth, the world. But the second way the term world is used is to describe a group of people. Let's just take an example. I took John chapter 1, verse 10. Even in this one verse, the term world is used in both senses. Okay, Chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. See, here the, the term world is used in two different ways. He was in the world means that Jesus was physically in the world. He was on the ground. He was under the sky. He was amongst the trees. He was in the, the created world. But then it says, yet the world did not know him. Who did not know him? The, the trees didn't reject him. The, the ground and the sky didn't reject him. Who did not know him? A group of people, people. So even in this one verse, the term world is used both to describe the physical earth and to describe a group of people. So to properly understand the passage today, we have to know how to understand the term world. The term world is used in our passage mainly referring to the second usage as a group of people. Okay, let's read it. Uh, verse 16. Who is this world, this group of people is talking about? For God so loved the world. Who are they? That he gave his only son, that whomever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
The world here is a group of people who believes in him. In the gospel, receive the gospel, who has received what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus loved the world. Jesus loved this group of people. But then the term world here also describes another group, a group that rejects the gospel, rejects this love that God has offered us on, on, uh, on the cross. Verse 18 to 19, uh, uh, describing a group of people who do not believe in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 19, a people who love the darkness rather than the light. You see? So the term world used mainly, once it's used in this passage to describe the actual earth, but mainly in this passage it's used to describe a group of people. Two groups of people. One, those who receive him. Two, those who don't receive him. Okay. At this point, we have to be very careful in making this distinction. We often miss and um, wrongly understand these the distinction of these two groups. Those who are saved by God and not perish, and those who perish and um, aren't saved. And it's a very fatal consequence, because if you misunderstand these two groups, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do two things that's very dangerous. One, it's going to give God a bad reputation, and two, it's going to make the church prideful. It's going to give God a bad reputation, it's going to make the church prideful. Let's, let's talk about the first one. First, misunderstanding the, uh, these two groups of those who believe in the name of the only Son of God and, 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 and don't perish, and the ones who don't believe in the Son of God and do perish, it's dangerous because it, it kind of it gives God a bad rep. How? Because at face value, it kind of makes God sound like a, a needy, spoiled dictator. Right? It's kind of like he's saying, he, he's fussing and pouting, and he's saying, if you believe me, I'll save you, but if you don't believe me, I'm going to hurt you. That, that's going to make it makes him sound like that, right? There's a group that believes him and saves him. If you believe me, I'll save you. If not, I'm going to condemn you. It's important to correct this misunderstanding to understand the whole passage by actually seeing the real cause of our condemnation. The real cause of our condemnation is not God. It's not because we rejected God. Okay, yes, it says our condemnation is done because we don't believe in the Son of God, but the actual cause is is not that the actual cause of our condemnation is not because we didn't accept christ the actual cause of our condemnation is our sin let me explain here's perhaps a good way to see it i'm going to use an analogy that i think is probably overused um that's okay i'll use it again um and there's a small detail about this analogy that's often overlooked now i might I, I will sound irritatingly nitpicky as I do this, uh, but stick with me. Um, I promise that there's a point to it. Okay. So you've probably heard the analogy of, uh, you know, we're all on a plane, and the plane's about to crash, and then the stewardess comes and gives you a parachute, and then say, take this parachute. If you take this parachute and you wear it, you're not going to perish. You're going to live. And then, you know, some people take the parachute, some people don't, and at the end, you know, they say, the parachute is a gospel. And then you're like, wow, mic drop. And you're like, okay, the parachute is a gospel. <laughs> that, that's kind of how it's shared. And then you're like, oh, okay, I see the gospel now. It, it kind of saves us. You probably heard this before, right? And they say that those who take the parachute, they will live. And those who don't take the parachute, they will be condemned to their death. Like the two groups we just talked about earlier. Those who receive Christ will be saved. Those who don't receive Christ will be condemned to their death. Now here's... Here's where it's important. Um, because usually what's implied in this analogy is the person who died, died because they rejected the parachute. That's not true. You have to be careful here. Or else we can mistakenly 
think the cause of their death is rejecting the parachute. They, they didn't die because they rejected the parachute. The cause of their death, of falling from that height, is what? Gravity. Irritatingly nitpicky, I know. Stick with me. They didn't die because they rejected the parachute. They died because of the reality of gravity. That's what happens when you fall from that height. That is the natural consequence is death. What would kill us is not ultimately the lack of a parachute. What would kill us is the gravity. So here's the point. Back to the passage. Here's why it's important to make that distinction. The person falling, let me repeat it, did not die because they rejected the parachute. They died because death is a natural consequence of the reality of gravity. In the same way that we aren't condemned to perish because we rejected Jesus, but because death is a natural consequence of the reality of our sinning against a holy, just, unchangeable God. Do you see the distinction there? It's small, but it's really important. The existence of gravity naturally condemns that falling man to his death. Just like the existence of a perfect, holy, just, and unchangeable God naturally condemns sin. But why can't God just change? Why can't he just loosen up a bit and not be so holy and strict and just? Well, then he'd be less than God. We just read in our statement of faith, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being, power, glory, might, justice, holiness, goodness. God can't change. He'd be less than God. Yeah, but still, that's kind of a faulty analogy because gravity is different than God. Gravity is impersonal. God's personal. God could have done something about it. Why didn't he do something about it? He did. Verse 16, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But what killed us is not the lack of a parachute. What killed us is not the lack of receiving the gospel. What killed that person is gravity. What's killing us is our sin before a holy and just God. That's what's killing us. And we can't blame God for being a spoiled dictator, for condemning us because we don't believe or accept him. This is like blaming the parachute for condemning us because we didn't accept it. You see? Rejecting the parachute is not what killed that person. Gravity is. Rejecting the gospel is not what kills us. Our sin before a holy, unchangeable God is what kills us. Understanding this distinction might give us perspective to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because of the reality of our sin and because God is holy and unchangeable. This dispels the image of God being a spoiled, pouting dictator but makes him who the gospel, who the Bible describes him as, a gracious king who in his love for dying sinners offered up his own son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Small distinction, very important for us to understand, not only redeeming God's image, but also for the rest of the passage. The question now is why do we so often reject this love given to us? Why is it so hard to accept this gospel, okay, brings us to our second point. The fear that entangles a dark world. Earlier I said there's two consequences of misunderstanding uh, the distinction between the two groups, the ones that are saved and the ones that aren't. One is misunderstanding that can give God a bad reputation as a spoiled, pouting dictator, which we hopefully have just explained, that we didn't die because we didn't take the parachute, we died because of our sin. The parachute is a mercy, it's grace that he has given us. But two... 
Misunderstanding the difference between those who are saved and those who aren't can make the church prideful. This is how. We need to see the reason behind why the world rejects this light. And after we explore this, we're going to see, I hope, that those in the church and those who claim to be religious may be not so different than those who aren't churchy or claim to be religious. Because both religiosity and irreligiosity, non-religiosity, however you want to term it, can both actually stem out of the same fear. The same fear that rejects the light and embraces the darkness. Let's, let's get to it. This fear is a fear of being exposed. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. We don't want to be exposed. What does the gospel do? Why were the religious leaders at that time offended by Jesus? Remember we talked about that, the people in the temple and Nicodemus? They didn't want to know what Jesus was talking about. Why? Because what Jesus is saying at the core is different than what they're saying. They're saying, you're not that helpless. You're not that powerless. You can do it on your own. Just go to church enough. Just read the Bible enough. Just pray more. You can save yourself. Jesus is saying, no, you can't. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't save yourself. You are that powerless. You are that helpless. You are that weak. You are that needy. You are that out of control. And when we hear those things, we hate it. We actually spend our whole lives avoiding being those things, don't we? We spend a lot of money and we save a lot of money to avoid feeling helpless, to avoid feeling powerless, to avoid feeling out of control and needy. That's why it's offensive. The gospel is offensive to them. That's what Jesus is saying. Why are we so allergic to being needy and powerless and helpless? Because in our experience, those kinds of people are rejected. People that are powerless, that are helpless, that are needy, usually are alone. Our, our, our culture tells us, our world tells us to hide it. Hide your neediness. Hide your powerlessness. Whenever you feel helpless, just hide it. We have all kinds of sayings that we come up with. Sayings that logically don't make sense at all, but we still say it. Boys don't cry. <laughs> really? Like, we have no tear glands? Is that what you mean? Like, what do you mean we don't cry? Because we cry, like, that happens. I'm physically able to. It makes no sense. What they're saying is, hide it. Hide it. Don't let the world know that you're powerless. Don't let the world know that you're weak. Don't let them know that you're needy. Here's, here's my favorite one. You shouldn't complain when there's people starving in Africa. Wait. <laughs> I can't complain because there's people starving. So if I lose an arm, I'm not allowed to be hurt by that because somebody else somewhere lost two arms? That makes no sense. I can still be hurt that I lost an arm. Even if somebody else lost their limbs, I, I'm still hurt I still lost an arm. Don't, you can't, because there are people starting to say, what is that? So only one person's allowed to complain at one given time, the, the person that's worst situation, but no one else can? It logically makes no sense. But, but what they're saying is hide it. Keep it concealed. Don't let people know that you're powerless, that you're needy. Stay in the dark. And these sayings don't make sense at all, but for some reason everybody says it. Not because they're logically coherent, but because we would do anything, the world would do anything to hide our neediness, to hide our powerlessness and helplessness, even when we come up with sayings that kind of sound noble, but really is just a version of hiding. 
Why? Because we ex in the past, we've experienced acceptance when we're strong, and we've experienced rejection when we're weak. We've experienced approval when we're powerful, and we've experienced denial when we're powerless. We've experienced being respected more when we're helpful, and we've experienced being respected less when we're helpless. So now comes the love of God into a dark world filled with people in hiding. And this love, verse 19 and 20 says, this light, it describes it as, exposes us. It shines into the dark. It's not fooled by our bank accounts. It's not fooled by our physical appearance. It's not fooled by our job titles. It's not fooled by our religious status. And it says, you are weak. It cuts through all the walls we've built to hide our powerlessness. It's so bright, it almost feels violent. Almost feels like what it was for Jesus when he threw over the money in the, in, in, in the temple on the table, saying, however much you pay, I can't save you. It's almost as violent as Jesus driving out all the animals from the temple, saying, whatever you sacrifice, it will not save you. You can't do it. I'm your only hope. I'm strong. I'm able. I'm powerful. I alone can save. He now stands alone in that temple. We can't pay for it. We can't sacrifice anything. And now that temple that was filled with merchants and sacrificial animals is just filled with one person, Jesus. I'm your lamb. I will die for you. You are weak. You're helpless. You're needy. You're powerless. And the second we hear those words, a loud voice shouts in our heads and says, hide. Don't let him tell you you're powerless. Don't let him tell you you're helpless. You can do it. Just do more religious things. Read the Bible more. Hide. It's safer in the dark. There's less rejection in the dark. Don't tell him you're helpless. Go back to the comfort of the dark. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But here is where it's absolutely important for John to give his commentary. This is why I think God gave his, uh, John gave his commentary and how it protects the church from pride. See, God, uh, John's commentary here gives us a whole different perspective of the term evil and wickedness. Evil and wickedness, when we hear those things, those who are evil, who reject the light, those who are wicked, um, they will not be saved. We, we, we think like people who do bad immoral things, like people who get drunk all the time, people who do drugs, and, and you know whatever it is we think of evil and immoral, that's what we think John is saying. But John is redefining evil and wickedness here. He's saying evil and wickedness is anything we do to remain in the dark and avoid being exposed as helpless and powerless. Evil and wickedness is anything we do to remain in the dark and avoid to be exposed as helpless and powerless in our own salvation. It can come in the form of two ways. One, it can come, this, this hiding can come in the form of immorality and debauchery, but it can also come in the form of moralism and religiosity. Yes, immorality and debauchery hides our helplessness, our need for salvation by saying, there's no such thing as salvation. I, I don't need the salvation you're talking about. I'm not that bad. Those are just really hard biblical standards that man made up. That's not from God. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not condemned. I don't need help. 
That's one way of hiding from the light. But there's another form of hiding. Remember who Jesus talked to in the past circumstances. When he met, he talked to the Jewish religious leaders and he talked to Nicodemus. This is who John's commentating on. They're saying not only immoral and irreligious people who are hiding from the light, but moral and religious people can sometimes use their moralism and their religiosity to hide from the light. Jesus wasn't talking to immoral, irreligious people. He was talking to the religious leaders at the time. Nicodemus, a Pharisee. John is saying, John is saying they are also hiding from the light. They're also in the darkness. What do you mean, John? They're religious people. They do really good things. They, they're really clean and they, you know, sleep at 8 p.m. and wake up at 3 a.m. and read the Bible all day long. They look really spiritual. How, how are they hiding from the light? They're hiding from the light exactly through those things. They're hiding from the light with their moralism and their religiosity. They hear the gospel that says, you can't, you're weak, you're helpless, you're powerless, and they reject it. And they say, yes, I can. Look at my religious accomplishments. Look at my moral track record. Do you know how many Bible studies I've been to and led? <laughs> Do you know how many verses I memorized? Do you know how much I go to church? I don't, I'm not helpless. That's them. That's the evil, wicked people out there. I'm, I'm good. I'm good, God. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Hide it. Hide it. Here's an unfortunate truth. Sometimes the best place to hide from the light is at church. It's at church. Again, I'm not denying that immorality and debauchery is a form of hiding from the light. Some people say there's no ultimate standard. Some even say there is no God. Don't let these religious people make you feel guilty with all these made-up standards. There is no law. No need to feel guilty or convicted. Yes, that is a form of hiding from the light. That is a form of not wanting to be exposed. But that's not what John was commentating on. John is commentating on the religious leaders at the time and on Nicodemus. How they're hiding from the light through their moralism and religiosity. Both may seem like they're at opposite ends of the spectrum, but the fear that entangles them is the same. To not be exposed as helpless, as needy, as powerless. To this world, to us who embrace and hide in the darkness, God sent his son, the light, and exposes both immorality and debauchery, but also religiosity and moralism as ways in which we hide and remain in the darkness. So now perhaps the perspective of these two groups hopefully have changed um, and, and explained that the difference isn't between those who are religious and irreligious. The difference isn't between those who are, who, who are externally moral or externally immoral, but the difference ultimately is between those who hide their helplessness and those who don't. Between those who hide their neediness and those who don't. Between those who hide that the fact that they're powerless and those who don't. So how does this understanding then of a fearful world in hiding refine the Christian's perspective of how to live in it? Point number three the Christian's life in a dark world. 
You've probably heard this, that a Christian is called to be what? To be a light to the world, right? Be a light to the dark world. Let your light shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. And that's true. Yes, Christians are called to let our light shine. And, and, and sometimes that means um, it's, it's to live obedient lives in such a way that makes people who are in sin and don't care about God and holiness and righteousness to, to look at our lives and be convicted and say, ah, man, um, there, is, there is something I'm missing. There is a God I'm offending. That is true. That is a form of us being a light. And that's how it's usually talked about. But we can't forget that the definition of darkness we just explained earlier tells us that we're not only called to be a light to those who are immoral and in blatant sin, but we're also called to be light for those who think their religiosity saves them. They are also hiding. So how, how then do we administer this light and this gospel? How do we lure a fearful hiding world who is in the dark out of the dark into the light? Let's look at the first half of verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. We do it by first coming to the light ourselves. We do it by first taking that same light we're so anxious to shine onto the world, onto ourselves. And tell the world, I'm dark too. I am sinful too. I am powerless too. I am helpless too. But whoever does what is true comes to light. How do we tangibly do this? First step. Stop pretending like everything's fine. Christians are very good at that. How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. Everyone's just fine. <laughs> All the time. Stop it. <laughs> we just need to stop doing that. Because <laughs> sometimes we're not fine. We just have to be honest that sometimes obeying God is really hard. And sometimes our motivations for obeying God isn't as pure as they seem to be. And when you do this, you're proclaiming that you're needy and you're helpless and you're powerless. But you're also proclaiming a God who climbed on a cross for you, even though you are those things. I'm exposed, warts and all, to this God, and he embraced me still. Whoever does what is true comes to light. But then the second half of verse 21, why do we come to light? To show the world that although we're helpless, that although we're needy, God still worked for us and died for us. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works may be carried out in God. God has accomplished what I cannot do. God has accomplished what I was weak to do. That he loved me and died for me even after seeing all this. We have to tell them that there exists a being who can love you although he fully knows you. That's how you lure people out of darkness. But that's the easy part. Because after that, you got to love them even at their worst. And you got to make the gospel that is so difficult to taste and feel sometimes real in their lives by sticking around when you see what's there. Because you have a God that stuck around after he sees you fully and knows you fully. You go and love them at their worst. Now, I'm not saying that you have to accept and approve every sinful behavior they do. That is not what I'm saying. If somebody sinned, we should not say, oh, no big deal. That part of the Bible is too rigid anyways. Just, you know, that's not a big deal. No, no, no. When you do that, you're encouraging them to hide again. 
You're not luring them out of the darkness. You're telling them it's okay. You're not that helpless. You're not that bad. You're not that needy. That's not loving them. That's, that's, that's making them remain in the dark. But at the same time, when somebody falls into sin, we don't also want to say, you're disgusting. <laughs> you make me sick. That'll also push them back into hiding. At, at best, they'll change, and they'll get their act together, not, and they, they'll look really religious and moral, not because of true repentance, but because they don't want to look filthy in your eyes. That's not repentance. That's hiding. We have the responsibility as Christians to try really hard to find that fine line of how to acknowledge sin, not make excuses for it, without pushing people into shame and hiding when we do it. Acknowledge sin. Not, don't, don't make excuses for it. It's sin. But when you do it, do it in such a way that doesn't push and shame people back into hiding. That's a very difficult art to master. But when you do find that fine line of knowing how to address sinful behavior without shaming people back into hiding, artful ministers of the gospel you will be. Not only ministers of the gospel to others, but also to yourself. Do you often shame yourself into hiding? Either by justifying your sin and saying it's not that bad, I'm not that needy, or shame yourself into hiding by trying really hard to be religious and moral, to hide your need and your helplessness. I pray that we would try our best to find that line, how to do that. My prayer for us is that we'd find the courage to see our need, to see our sin, and also not make excuses for ours and for others, but at the same time, do it in such a way that does not shame them back into their sin, that does not shame us back into our sin, and but realize that there is a God, there is a being who, when he knows the deep help we need, stick around for me. And that we would also do this unto others. I will end in prayer. Then the band is going to come up, and uh, the music team, rather, is going to come up and lead us into worship. Uh, but before, I want to read our passage one more time, and hopefully we can see... Um, the empathetic angle John is addressing the world in and that we would, who we are so often hiding in darkness that we would come out of it and lure others out of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out not in themselves, not in their church, not in their religiosity, but in God. Let's pray. Father, as we learn how to walk this fine line, I pray that the words spoken today was faithful in walking that fine line of not justifying sinful behavior, 
nor giving permission to religious hiding. It's hard to do so, and I pray that if the balance was somehow um, said in a wrong way, that you would clarify it in the hearts of those who are here today, hearing your word, that you would help them get the heartbeat of the passage, which is, we are all afraid of being exposed as helpless, and we hide through making excuses, we're not that bad, and we hide by making excuses, we can do it on our own. Let this church be a community that loves each other even at their worst, but yet does not make excuses for sin either. And when we do acknowledge it, we do it in such a way that doesn't shame others and guilt others into hiding. But we do it in such a way that the gospel demands us to. Deal with it, but love them at the same time. And that we would deal with our own sin but believe in the love you have given us on the cross at the same time. What amazing grace, what amazing mercy that lures us out of our darkness. What an amazing God that gives us an example of what it means to lure people out of hiding. May we do the same as lights in this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.